This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Well, welcome everybody. I'm very excited about our topic today. We're going to be discussing intraoperative hypotensive resuscitation, and I'm super excited about the guest that we have today. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Maddox, would you mind just introducing yourself for the one or two people who may not know who you are? I'm Ken Maddox. I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon by training, a trauma surgeon by academic uh, hobby. I am at Baylor College of Medicine, where I'm a distinguished service uh, professor. Uh, currently, I'm chief of staff, chief of surgery at the Ben Taub Hospital in Houston. I've been fascinated by... Uh, uh, the physiology, and anatomy, and challenges of, uh, of trauma, and I am uh, uh, thrilled uh, to take on sacred cows and uh, uh, be an iconoclast on things that have no scientific basis to continue. Fantastic, and we're, we're very excited. Thank you for making time for us today. Um, also joining us is Dr. Carrick. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself, Dr. Carrick? Uh, thank you. My name is Matthew Carrick, and I'm a trauma surgeon as well. Uh, I My first job out of residency was working at Bentop with Dr. Maddox, and they did a great job of providing kind of mentorship and leadership for uh, young faculty, uh, asked us to try to develop a research Topic or research interest, and what interested me most was kind of the tradition of hypotensive resuscitation at Ben Taub and trying to figure out how to save some of the people that are kind of right on the cusp uh, of survival amongst the trauma patients. So I was there about five years with Dr. Maddox, a, a great start to a career. I moved back to where I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm the trauma medical director now at Medical Center of Plano. And I have a faculty appointment at the University of North Texas as a clinical assistant professor. And I work for acute surgical care specialists, which is a branch of MCARE as a trauma surgeon. Fantastic. And uh, just so everyone knows, the paper that we'll be discussing today, uh, Dr. Carrick was the lead author and Dr. Maddox was the senior author. It appeared in the uh, June issue of the journal Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Uh, and we will post a link to that article uh, on the webpage that accompanies the podcast. So head on over there if you're interested in the paper. Uh, also joining us for the discussion today are my co-moderators, Dr. Matt Martin and Dr. Kevin Pay. Matt and Kevin, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, great to be here and, and really looking forward to this topic. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very excited. Well, let's go ahead and just dive right in. Uh, first off, I want to congratulate you both, uh, Dr. Carrick and Dr. Maddox, for uh, – this uh, paper and this project, it, as, as all of us know who have tried to get one of these uh, projects running, to pull off a randomized controlled uh, prospective study in the trauma population is not easy, and then to do it with the exception from informed consent uh, that you're able to do as well is, is just uh, outstanding. So really congratulations on getting that done. Um, maybe to start off, maybe uh, uh, 
Matthew, we could ask you uh, to just describe briefly what the rationale for the study was and maybe some of the background and how the project came to be. Great, I'd be happy to. So the, the kind of the background from the kind of the personal level was that, uh, you know, there had been Todd. Uh, Dr. Maddox had completed several years before a, a pre-hospital trial of limited fluid resuscitation or delayed resuscitation, and that uh, everybody's pretty familiar with that study. That study went right up to the OR door and kind of stopped there. Well, the next step was how do we con- how do we continue to investigate this idea of either low volume or low blood pressure resuscitation uh, in the in the operating room itself. So, uh, you know, looking looking back uh, from a historical standpoint, there's been several people that have kind of thought that uh, aggressive resuscitation prior to control of hemorrhage was a bad idea. Uh, then there was kind of a shift, and I think everybody remembers um, ATLS and the two liters of lactated rangers that you're supposed to get right away, or two liters of warm crystalloid. I think we all answered when we took our ATLS. Uh, and uh, and then then there was kind of a shift back with Dr. Maddox's paper kind of towards to lower volume resuscitation uh, and and hypotensive resuscitation. So. Uh, again, just kind of in a historical context, when we started the trial, because it did take quite some time, it, it was kind of right around the time where, uh, following Manny Rivers' study, where a map of around 65 had kind of been defined as, you know, resuscitation, that had sort of become the standard of things. So if, if you're, if someone's reading a paper and they're saying to themselves, well, why didn't they pick a, a systolic of 80 or something as the, as the normal or the control? It's, it's basically just, the context of the era when we were working that made it made us design it that way. And we were we were I remember sitting multiple times at morning conference thinking, can we even do another study like this? Can is there still a mechanism to do waiver of consent or community consultation for waiver of consent? Uh, and we weren't even sure that there was from asking around and with, with Dr. Maddox's leadership, we were able to talk to some people at Baylor and then come to realize that, you know, there, there is a mechanism for this. You have to be careful with it. Uh, and then we went ahead and proceeded with the study um, and then ended up choosing our two groups with a target map of 65 and a target map of 50 for the interoperative portion of the resuscitation uh, as our, our two targets. So that's kind of the historical um, kind of how we got to where we were. Um, the the community consultation part um, went well. We, it's, it's a challenging uh, challenging thing to do. Uh, we ended up um, consulting with the community right around Bentob uh, in English and Spanish, and our IRB was satisfied that the community was uh, interested in continuing with the study. Uh, and then, so then, um, we began to, um, randomize the patients into the two groups. And so if you, the study design is such that if you are hypotensive, um, with a systolic less than 90, any time in the emergency room prior to going to the OR, you could be randomized at the OR door. The rationale behind that is randomization as late as possible is to not introduce bias. So once you've randomized them, you have almost no time at all to begin your intervention of the surgery. So the little box with the pre-randomized slips was actually right outside the operating room. Then everything else is standard. We left the, the means by which the anesthesiologist was to achieve the various maps up to the anesthesiologist in question, uh, providing the anesthesia for the case. And then um, the 
surgery stop time was the end time of the procedure, and that we followed for 30 days, and the outcome was Kaplan-Meier 30-day survival. Great. Um, Dr. Maddox, any comments from your standpoint about the origin of the study or the rationale for it? A couple of uh, points. Um, we uh, had uh, three previous uh, pre-hospital randomized uh, waiver of consent studies, one with mass pants, uh, one with uh, hypertonic saline, and then uh, the one that Dr. Carrick has referred to. We initially chose a systolic of 70 as the entry criteria. For a variety of reasons, we did not find that we were ever going to get a, a big enough cohort to make the study scientifically uh, valid. And we compromised at 90. As a matter of fact, I was worried that 90 uh, was too high an entry criteria for us to uh, 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 get uh, good data. By the time we started this study um, for the operating room, the whole community, the EMS, had basically stopped giving crystalloids in the ambulance. And the number of, the volume of trauma in the community had increased. This becomes a very important point down the line. The volume of trauma in the community had increased, and the volume, despite the fact that Memorial Hermann could come on board the, as a level one, the uh, volume of trauma at the Bentob was no less than it was in the previous studies where patients were flooded with fluid pre-hospital. The number of patients available at an entry criteria of 90 was almost half to a third of what it was in the early days when we first started our resuscitation studies with MAST. Uh, so we asked the question, why? And it was about that time, maybe a little bit before, that the military came out and determined that the systolic at which one pops a clot is 80 millimeters systolic. And so uh, the hypotension in the early bleeder before any clot was formed in the ambulance or pre-hospital uh, was already popped at that physiologic time uh, when there was protection at, at 80. And uh, when we then uh, stopped giving fluids at all, pre-hospital, the patients that arrived in the emergency room and the operating room had self-adjusted and were often above 100, making those previous entries available to us now non-available. And so our projected time for doing this, stu this study uh, was almost doubled or uh, maybe even tripled in the length of time. Uh, than we initially projected, because despite the same number of patients, if not more patients in the community, we actually um, had less that we could enter. Yeah, and, it's, and, and I think if, if I were to read this study, um, I would say it sure took you a lot of time to enroll the patients. So it, besides what Dr. Maddox is saying, the setting in which this, you know, this whole study took place is in Houston, where um, the pre-hospital people are pretty 
pretty interested in low volume um, pre-hospital resuscitation anyway. It's it's actually um, that we we didn't um, we we did the study with basically just um, in, internal funding only, and that's what I mean by that is that the attendings and the residents just did their best to enroll the people. Um, and I tell you what, you know, you have a, someone with a gunshot wound to the trunk, uh, and their systolic is less than 90. You're taking them to the operating room. Sometimes the last thing in your mind is, is oh, don't let me forget to enter this guy into study and randomize him. So it, it's actually um, you know, pretty challenging, and we just missed some patients from time to time from that standpoint. Um, but it is it, it is what Dr. Maddox said. It, was, it took us longer to perform the study, in part because it was harder to find patients as well. Hey, so quick question about the pre-hospital phase. And, and, and did you look at that in the patients and, and if they got pretty, you know, homogeneous pre-hospital care? And, and then the second question is, so when are your pre-hospital people giving fluid? You know, obviously if they're normal tensive, they're not, but are, do they have a pressure cutoff they use to give fluid in your system? Um, Dr. Maddox, you want to answer that? Uh, yes. Um, after... Halfway through the original study that we published, we had trouble. Uh, we blinded the patients, of course, on an every-other-day basis, and both the pre-hospital and in the emergency room, we had trouble uh, getting the second arm of the study because even on the day when people were to get fluids and be resuscitated as normal, both the paramedics, the emergency physicians, the surgeons in the emergency room didn't want to give any fluid because they had already decided what the outcome of the study was going to be. So they tended to cheat. So we need to push them to do what was normal and nationally standard uh, on those day, the, on those give fluid days. So even by the time we'd finished the study, the mood in the community was no fluid. By the time Matt Carrick came to work with us, uh, the ambulance people, especially if they were coming to Bentob, especially with our major partner, the Houston Fire Department, often would, if they felt a peripheral pulse, they gave nothing. And that was true across the board. Remember, that also was now happening at that period of time during the First and Second Gulf War by especially the Marines in Iraq, and uh, ultimately by the end of that those wars, all of the military people. So this word, I thought it was going to take about 10 years. Uh, by the time we were doing uh, this Carrick study, we um, uh, the mood in the pre-hospital phase in Houston, at least on patients coming to Ben Taub, was basically, basically no fluid. Uh, in the pre-hospital phase on, on anybody, uh, if they could feel a pulse or the person could give their name, rank, and serial number. Now, if they were shot in the head or had a massive head injury, there was an attempt to, to, to achieve a cerebral perfusion, but that group was excluded from this study. And maybe if we could, uh, Dr. Carrick, if you wouldn't mind just summarizing the key results, maybe the, for those who have not read the paper, and then we can... Uh, discuss the different methods and the implications. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 study, um, you know, proceeded as you can imagine with um, with the um, IRB's involvement. So we actually 
stopped the first phase of the study pretty early on because they were they were worried that we would end up causing harm to the patient and 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 um, specifically we were going to cause myocardial infarction uh, strokes and acute renal insufficiency and so we had to stop the study after about I, I can't remember exactly 27 patients or so and show them that there was there was those complications were happening but a rate that was similar between the two groups and uh, we had to do that at every 90 patients and then eventually uh, the, eventually the data safety monitoring board for our IRB um, went ahead and had a stop because uh, for, for several reasons. Uh, so to, to sum up um, the results is that uh, again these people have to have a systolic less than 90, you have to believe that they're bleeding and you're going to do a thoracotomy or laparotomy on them. You randomize it to OR door, and then we follow them for 30 days, Kaplan-Meier survival. And so the, the end result is after 30 days, Kaplan-Meier survival, is we weren't able to show that there was any difference. And based upon the statistical analysis based by the DSMB, it didn't look like we were ever going to reach a meaningful outcome. So the the, the patients that were randomized in the two the two groups were. Uh, a target minimum mass of 50 and a target minimum mass of 65. So in other words, the anesthesiologist is supposed to resuscitate the patient, and they're supposed to keep pushing the resuscitation until the, the, the mass is either above 50 or the mass is above 65. And when they did that, we weren't able to see a difference in the two groups. Now, um, in, at 30-day survival now, the, some of the kind of interesting things that we found is that the it's, this is not a safety study, but if you look at the a priori secondary outcomes we had for this study, specifically MI, stroke, renal failure, hypertension, coagulopathy, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and infection, that they were equal among the two groups. No, in other words, no statistical difference in those. So um, the the, old, the some things that were kind of meaningful that came out were the um, the mortality seemed to be that the the low map group ended up having you were more likely to survive like 24 hours in the low map group. So if you had a low volume resuscitation, you're more likely to survive 24 hours. So there's an early survival advantage, but it, that survival advantage didn't hold uh, out to 30 days. So um, in the end, you know, if you the more you know about statistics, you realize that if if your sample size is big enough, you're able to show that a smaller difference is uh, significant. It becomes easier to show things the bigger your size is. So I think that in the end, the data safety monitoring board, and I, I think the rest of us agree with them, is that we weren't just going to, we just weren't going to be able to get enough patients in this study to be able to show the the 30 days Kaplan-Meier survival that we would hope we would be able to show. And that brings up an interesting question that I had is that, um, you know, oftentimes we talk about statistical significance, um, but then there's the separate issue of clinical relevance. And so I guess my question uh, for both of you is, um, despite this study being terminated early and, and being unable to show a statistically significant difference, has the have these findings changed your practice? In other words, have you adopted this uh, intraoperative hypotensive resuscitation in your own practices? Um, it probably depends right now on the anesthesiologist and the surgeon who's on on any given night. Uh, we don't pay much attention to blood pressure. As a matter of fact, my own personal philosophy is 
the thing that correlates least with outcome of all the things we measure, including TEG, including uh, coagulopathy, the thing that correlates least with outcome is that darn thing we call blood pressure, even to the point that I would suggest that the sigmomanometer joined the mass pants in the curiosity section of the medical museum. <laughs> and, um, we're, we're all hung up on blood pressure. And um, so I think what this has done in our practice at this hospital is uh, we don't really worry about blood pressure that much. I see faculty after faculty walk into the shock room feeling for a pedal pulse and not even asking about the blood pressure. And when they're told, they kind of ignore it. And um, I, I consider that healthy. That actually was what happened in the, the majority of both the Iraq and the Afghanistan war. So, yes, I think it has changed, uh, changed practice both in civilian practice and in many ways uh, in the military practice. Yeah, I would agree with what Dr. Maddox says. You know, for, for years, you know, especially as a medical student, a resident, you see the attending walk in, and the first thing you see them do is uh, touch the back of the trauma patient's foot, and you're thinking to yourself, why is that guy, why is that guy feeling for, why is that guy feeling his foot? This guy was in a car accident, or he was shot in the abdomen, and they just, I think the trauma surgeons knew for a long time that, you know, if you have some, if you have a pulse in your extremities, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna feel fine, you're gonna be reassured, and so, I agree with Dr. Maddox. It was interesting for me to leave Baylor and Ventaub because there it's pretty easy to convince the anesthesiologist, hey, let this patient's blood pressure ride low because they already, they already believed in it. They already believed in hypotensive resuscitation. And so it was, it was difficult for me to go to somewhere else. It was actually pretty reassuring to go to different hospitals and talk to anesthesiologists and say, hey, listen, I want you to let this guy's blood pressure ride a little bit low. You know, as long as his mass is around 80 or so, I'm going to be happy. Um, and to have them be enthusiastic, I never really had problems with getting them to, getting them to adopt it. So that was, that was pretty interesting, interesting uh, for me. The way I use it is uh, probably you guys have operated on tons of people, and sometimes you probably even had to do thoracotomies on them. You open up their abdomen, and the only thing bleeding is their spleen, and you take it out. And the, the abdominal portion of the operation doesn't take very long. And in those cases, it probably it probably is not going to make much difference if you have some hypotensive resuscitation going on. But I, I tell you, the times I really like it is on the patients where the, the bleeding is going to be diffuse. The bleeding is not easily controlled by a single clamp or a single figure of eight suture or a, a simple splenectomy. And in those cases where I think that like the big raw surface area of the liver is going to be bleeding, and it's going to take me a while to stop it. I really, in those cases, like to like to keep their blood pressure low. And in that in that case, what you're doing is you're really balancing the damage that hypoperfusion does to your body on one hand, versus the damage that every resuscitative fluid we have does on the other hand. Because if you push their blood pressure up, you're most likely to be giving either more fluid or more blood or more plasma, and all of those are bad for you. On the other hand, if they don't have a blood pressure at all and they're not perfusing anything at all in their body, that's bad for you too. So um, really you're balancing there. And on a case where it's going to be oozing and it's really going to be hard for me to stop that bleeding, to get, you know, 
what Walter Cannon says, control of the blood loss. If it's going to be hard to do that, then I like to let their blood pressure ride low. I do think we have moved more towards dropping the word resuscitation. I think that word has a different connotation than what today's physiology and critical care understand. Uh, we stop in the emergency room to resuscitate, and we do a lot of fiddling around and ordering tests that we really don't need, especially on a penetrating wound of the abdomen. That person's going to go to the OR and get cut, hey, diddle, diddle, right down the middle. And that individual, uh, for every minute they stay in the emergency center, they're dying a few percentage points. So getting on to the OR and getting on with our business and not doing any resuscitation before control of the hemorrhage. And often this is truncal hemorrhage, not even a junctional hemorrhage, that you, we don't have any tricks to, uh, to control. And our focus has been historically on blood pressure, and our focus really ought to be on controlling the, the hemorrhage, preserving the circulating blood volume, and doing that in as short a period of time as possible. So. The purpose of the emergency room becomes a place to wave to the patient as you move from the ambulance dock to the operating room or the ICU because uh, that's where uh, they really need to be cared for. And just dropping the terms resuscitation and putting that uh, uh, with the blood pressure and the mass pants in that curiosity section. So, yeah, you know, it was limited to penetrating trauma and young patients age less than 45. Uh, it sounds like some of that was imposed by the IRB. So what, what are your feelings on blunt trauma patients and older patients, and specifically older blunt trauma patients? Uh, I believe yeah, in this philosophy question. across the board. I actually learned this from E. Stanley Crawford in his work with ruptured aneurysms. And in ruptured aneurysms, regardless of the age, you don't give fluids and raise the blood pressure until you get a clamp or a hand on the pro aorta proximal to the rupture. And in that condition, uh, the, the, the survival rate is better in the non-fluid-managed patients. And uh, so I believe in it across the board. And... Uh, I think I can defend it. Yeah, I, I, I reiterate what Dr. Maddox said there. Our exclusion criteria of less than 14 and greater than 45. Uh, the greater than 45 was, a, you know, just a compromise we made with the IRB. I, I think so many people on the IRB were convinced that we were going to be uh, causing stroke uh, and making people worse in the setting of, you know, pre-existing disease that they thought they felt more comfortable just excluding those people. Um, obviously, head injury patients, uh, needed to be ruled out because you definitely have to perfuse the brain. That's what it's all about. The pregnancy and the incarcerated one, that comes from um, the required exclusion criteria with uh, the waiver of consent. Uh, and then we've been taught that to take care of uh, pediatric trauma, uh, unless, of course, a disaster scenario. Uh, they would, of course. So less than 14 was kind of a practical thing anyway. Um, so, you know, how would how would you um, – Apply. I would definitely use it in somebody that that was uh, older than 45 years old. I would I would just be a little bit more nervous afterwards. But I, again, I would use it for the the same topic. I think um, one question I was going to bring up. One point I was going to bring up before you ask that question is, is 
there are times when I would use it for sure, but then there's times when um, I think you, you have to have that caveat. One was the head injury. Um, the another time, another thing to think about with with um, hypotensive resuscitation is once hemorrhage is controlled, then those people need need more kind of standard ICU management, and then you kind of need to proceed to resuscitate them a little bit. Uh, this other time, I don't actually know whether we need to be using it or not. Is extremely long transport times. So uh, I was discussing with a trauma surgeon the other day. You know, pointed out what what does he do up in Colorado when there's somebody with a uh, pelvic fracture that's coming from a small hospital? It's going to take, and the weather's too bad to fly, and it's going to take them four hours to drive out of the mountains. Uh, and I I don't know what I don't know how to advise people when it comes to that that kind of case. Then. Uh, and then um, uh, one last uh, thing that you brought up was it, it being the study being isolated to um, penetrating trauma only. It was actually applied uh, originally to blunt and penetrating trauma when I originally uh, came up with the design um, with uh, the help of the team at Bentop, of course. We wanted to increase the generalizability of the study. I think with uh, Dr. Maddox's previous pre-hospital hypotensive resuscitation study, you know, multiple people have written papers about that study, and one of the things you read about it is that this is for penetrating only. This is for penetrating only, and you keep reading that again and again. So I wanted the I wanted the topic of hypotensive resuscitation to be expanded to or to, to more areas than just penetrating only. So we started out with blunt trauma. Now, just strangely enough, even though we we did the rotating block size of pre-randomized by a computer and sealed envelopes that were prepared by someone else and given to me, even though all that had happened, of the first 14 patients or so, um, uh, uh, almost all the blunt trauma was on one side. And so the IRB said, uh, sorry, the data the monitoring board, they said, well, we don't know why this is happening, but we would rather you just excluded these people. We're also sort of afraid you may be getting some head injuries now you don't know about. So we'd feel more comfortable if you just limited it to penetrating. So we did proceed with just the penetrating only. Now, subsequent to when we started, Marty Schreiber has published the hypo recess pilot trial um, from the uh, from the resuscitation outcomes consortium, and that's the 2015 Journal of Trauma article. And, you know, they found that this may be even more beneficial in this topic of standard resuscitation versus controlled resuscitation. They found that the mortality at 24 hours in controlled resuscitation group was 3% versus 18% in standard resuscitation. Now, their standard resuscitation is pretty aggressive, I'll be honest with you, but a 3% mortality versus 18% mortality in this pilot study, if that bears out for blunt trauma patients, if that bears out in the in the formal study, the follow-up study that they're going to do with the ROC, that'll be a huge step in the direction of this being adopted for blunt trauma as well. I would like permission to disagree with Dr. Carrick in one point only that he made, if I may. You can disagree with whatever you want, Dr. Maddox. <laughs> uh, yeah, we Dr. love conflict. said once the bleeding is controlled and you've closed the patient and gone to the ICU, you need to play a little catch-up and perhaps the rules may be there, uh, you should relax and give some crystalloid fluid. I would like to challenge Dr. Carrick and everyone who is listening to this webcast 
to find me some data that says that. Because I think that is a fallacy and a legacy that we have bowed to with no data whatsoever. If you look at the military data, if you look at the civilian data on when people die, they die pre-hospital, they die in the emergency room, they die in the operating room, but once they get to the ICU, they don't die so often unless it's of complications late, and they don't die of hemorrhage that often. So I'd like to raise this question. Um, we um, in the ICU start bumping them up with everything. We give them a, a trial of fluid, and that comes from the internal medicines, ARDSnet uh, folks and congestive failure folks, and we know now that's a bunch of stuff. Uh, and then we, um, we uh, start giving them Levofed and other drugs. Uh, and at morning report, you get the report they're on three pressers. Well, this is trauma, yeah. You got three pressers, yeah. Why? Because we want their blood pressure up. Back to the same initial fallacy. So we get those three pressers, and what happens? The renal output goes down because we uh, cause a vasoconstriction in the renal arteries. And we create all the other complications of all of the pressors and the combination pressors that we give. And then we start giving them crystalloid. We admit to ourselves in all the trauma meetings, especially on the work from others, that normal saline and uh, even uh, Ringer's lactate and others are bad in the ER, ambulance, and the operating room now, <laughs> but then we flood them in the ICU. And despite that, we still have uh, some good outcome. I think yeah, this study now, with a brave person who has the courage to fail and wants their name on a paper that's never been published yet, the same philosophy, the same thesis now to apply to the ICU, Get rid of some of those pressers and accept a lower perfusion pressure and measure something else, maybe cardiac output, maybe peripheral vascular resistance, maybe an ultrasound uh, dilatation of the vena cava and uh, uh, the valves of the heart, as have been proposed by a number of people. This opens the door for broadening our concepts and saving more patients. So I offer that challenge to those who are not wimps and who have the uh, <laughs> desire to expand our uh, trauma horizons. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point. Like, just to back up for a second to get back to the study we're talking about is that we had we had also um, asked the surgeons to try to mark the endpoint, to try to try to look at the clock and know. Uh, not when the case ended, because that's pretty easy to tell, but we also wanted them to try to get a, a quote-unquote control of hemorrhage time, where they felt like, I've got this, you know, the only thing that was bleeding was the spleen and it's out. And on those kind of cases, if we were able to get the, the, I've got control of hemorrhage time, but it was a whole lot of cases where we weren't even able to tell when the when the surgeon had control of hemorrhage, and they were taking patients back to the ICU with laps packing their liver and whatnot, um, or their pelvis, or you know, so that's all torn apart. And so a lot of times the control of the hemorrhage um, never took place until 
you know, three or four hours later in the ICU when the patient's peg is finally normalized, the drain outfits in their abdomen went down. So that would be a case where I would feel comfortable extending it into the ICU. And then, you know, to get back to Dr. Maddox's original introduction of himself, it's, that's one of the great things about working with him is that he, he always will push you to challenge the next <laughs> the next topic. Just when you think you're safe, he'll always push you to think about what you're doing with the next point. Uh, let me now pick on those people who are under the age of 30. Uh, what I've heard from you at the big trauma meetings in the United States uh, and internationally is that all the papers are kind of touchy-feely papers about systems and counting numbers and data drilling. And uh, uh, after a couple of them, they get very boring. Um, and the, those procedural cases that affect the person out in the rural area, that affect the person in the academic center, are studies like this. This study, even putting it together as a multi-center study can be done by anybody, and it's the kind of paper that puts you on as first at all the big national meetings and as a lead article in the New England Journal of Medicine. So if you want instant recognition and instant attack by the critical care people and the emergency people and the surgeons who are living in the past, then do a study like this. If you want to change the future, do a study like this. And there are at least 12 people on this phone, on this uh, webcast that might want to do it, so get on with it so you're the first. Yeah, do you hear that, Kevin? That sounds like a great project for Yale. <laughs> yeah, I'm on it. <laughs> hey, so uh, quick question for both of you. Uh, how do you think the hypotensive resuscitation concept and practice interacts now with the shift to damage control resuscitation. So so if if part of the benefit of hypotensive resuscitation was you're you're not giving crystalloid and we know crystalloid's bad, but if now we've shifted to using blood or FFP earlier and a lot of pre-hospital units are now carrying blood and or FFP, do you think it'd still be deleterious to give them fluid if it's blood or FFP and they're hypotensive? That sounds like yeah, because, a hypothesis you know, to me, and a hypothesis has the opportunity of being tested. I, I don't believe it because I'm old, but uh, I would support someone proving or disproving uh, that uh, hypothesis. Well, if you, to me, if you, um, we are, we know crystalloid and other fluids are bad, and so everybody's certainly very enthusiastic about one-to-one to one transfusion ratios. But just, I mean, it, that means you're going to be given more of that instead. And the thing is, is blood is not benign and plasma is not benign and platelets aren't benign. So the idea behind hypotensive resuscitation is, is that you're going to give less of everything. So if, if you were just, if you hadn't read the literature in the last 10 years and all you gave was crystalloid, hypotensive resuscitation should allow you to give less of that. If you if you are all on board with the literature and you like one to one resuscitation with hemostatic resuscitation, if you want to call it that, if you're going to do that, hypotensive resuscitation combined with that will allow you to give less blood and less plasma. All of it is less 
and it's better for you. So in my mind, there are two ideas and concepts that have been worked in synergy together to improve improve outcomes for patients. You know, besides just the the fact that we were going to have trouble um, reaching statistical significance, one of the things that the BSMB was wondering is, is is this are people already super enthusiastic about this anyway, and is it happening happening anyway? And you know, they were wondering in the back of their head, you know, is it okay to keep giving a map of sixty five? Shouldn't everybody be getting a map of fifty? Like the times had kind of changed since we had started the study. So I I hundred percent think that it's something that can be adopted along with um along with uh the the more modern kind of choice of your resuscitative volume expander being that most people are now are going to choose plasma and blood along with the platelets rather than fluids in the past. Uh, I, in general, agree, I, and I have just a couple of points. Number one, you ask about damage control and hypotensive resuscitation. Uh, I, I personally think we're doing way too much damage control, and we're bailing out because we're wimpy. Uh, I, I, I think uh, we ought to have the courage, uh, the pressure's a little bit low, that's fine. It doesn't make things necessarily worse. Go ahead and finish the operation and close the belly and be done with it and then go home tomorrow. So my first point is uh, challenging, we've gone too far and the pendulum needs to swing back on damage control, needs to be thought about by somebody. Second, there's a whole group of people, including emergency physicians, that are emerging, bowing to the shrine of a new balloon called Reboa. And there is a desire to put Reboa in at a number of places, including uh, the ambulance in some locations in the world, uh, I, in order to raise the blood pressure. Now back to that whole concept of raising the blood pressure, uh, now with a catheter in a balloon, not with crystalloid or fluids or drugs. Uh, I personally think if you do not have the capability to fixing whatever is bleeding within 30 minutes of the time that balloon goes in the artery, you should not be putting in the balloon. And I'm afraid we're going to lose this technology to the world if we put the balloon in and like some of the papers have shown, significant complications that did not happen uh, we ought not to put in the balloon unless we can fix it and be closing the belly within 30 minutes of when the balloon goes in. And I think that's personally a little long. I would shorten that uh, for people that are working uh, with me. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm raising a caution about the balloon. It ought to be put it, controlled by surgeons in the operating room who are ready to cut it. I remind you there are good surgeons in this world who have never, ever, ever had a survival from a gunshot wound or stab wound to the aorta. I remind you that there are trauma centers, level one trauma centers, that have reported data that say they have never, ever had a survivor from gunshot wound to the aorta or a stab wound to the aorta. The Reboa balloon, in order to help resuscitate by raising the blood pressure, is not going to change that. It's just like the clamp. It doesn't magically fix something, in today, especially in today's technology. 
So I know it's not the subject of today's talk. It's sort of peripheral. I'm raising a huge yellow caution flag about something I was very enthusiastic for about three years ago, and now I have grave concern about its overuse, especially by people who don't know what an aortic injury really is. Well, it sounds like a great topic for a debate at the Absolutely. 2017 Trauma Critical Care Vegas meeting. I suspect <laughs> that may have already happened from the program committee. <laughs> hey, uh, and then quick question or comment for both of you. As you mentioned, Matt, you know, the well, we can't do this in TBI patients or any suspicion of TBI, but but to to you know throw throw stones at another sacred cow. I'm not convinced that hypotensive resuscitation would worsen outcomes in a TBI patient who's bleeding, uh, and in fact, in the big picture, may even improve outcomes. Uh, just wondering what you both think about that, and whether whether you you think this could be extended to TBI patients. Also, yes, but it needs a trial study, a smaller study. Maybe in, 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 in the animal lab or in the simulation lab or in a computer lab, uh, I think there's been a lot of hocus-pocus in TBI. And I think in an attempt to raise the perfusion pressure, we may have made the brain swelling worse. And so I agree with you as a, as a trial, but from a standard of practice, especially if it gets to a peer review or a court case, You've got to stand with what's currently in the literature, and you wouldn't have much support without having a trial of or pilot study first. Okay. Well, I know our time is very short here with Dr. Maddox needing uh, to step off the phone. Um, just real briefly, do either of you have any closing comments that you'd like to make? Yes. Thank you for having these webcasts, especially in trauma, in every country of the world, every country of the world, the leading cause of uh, uh, poten loss of potential years of life lost is uh, injury. Not cancer, not heart disease, not stroke, uh, not infectious disease, but trauma. And it's important that we keep pushing this envelope. And uh, uh, although some modern therapies uh, in uh, Immunotherapy and genomics may eliminate some diseases. Uh, we have still not made a significant dent in the public health menace of injury. And it's a great opportunity um, and must be solved. I also remind us that there are countries listening to this webcast that have huge number of ATLS courses that are completed, but there's not a single trauma center in the entire country. And the country, and especially even the surgeons, don't accept the trauma surgeon as anybody except somebody to run the ER. Uh, trauma in those countries is still the leading cause of death. So we have a continuing public health opportunity. And those opportunities where Nobel Prizes are won usually are achieved before the age of 30. So those individuals who are young and are visionary are those who are going to be the leaders of surgery and trauma in just the very near future. Thank you to you all for having the webcast. I think it's a really nice way to um, uh, 
get to get to have a electronic sit down with Dr. Maddox for an hour and, and hear what his thoughts on some things are. And it's, I'm sure um, I'm sure I'm not the only person that has a pretty long drive to work, but so to be able to uh, listen to a podcast while you're driving, get some education at the same time is um, fantastic. I think overall, like in closing statement, I think I encourage everyone to to read the study. Um, one for um, yes, I think you should get, you should be able to get a good idea of the topic of hypothesis presentation. But but two, you know, it, the study was a lot of work, but it's it's doable. And and if there's a, a young faculty member out there that wants to to participate in some research, they should. Read the study, and when they're reading about it, think about it. Is it something that I could do? Now it's a lot of work; you'd have to have support. Um, but you can do this this kind of study with a clinical intervention with a simple outcome, and you can do it for relatively cheaply. And if you miss out on a grant, you can't get a big grant. You can do it if you can just convince your friends and the people you work with to lend lend you a little bit of their support and effort, and then you can get this kind of thing done. Um, and it was a, it was a lot of fun to do it. It was a definitely exciting intellectual exercise to try to put it together, try to anticipate everything that might go wrong with it, uh, and how you're going to adapt to that. Um, and then I think overall it's going to – it also, even though we weren't able to get a statistically significant difference in survival, I think when you read the study, you can see that it, it does contribute to the overall knowledge base we have about – hypotensive resuscitation, the topic, and something that's important to all of us, which is trying to keep our trauma patients alive. Um, I have one question so, of Dr. Carrick. When you yes. started this study, who was the most junior faculty at the Bentob Hospital? I was. So you don't have to be senior to create a study, which ends up resulting in being the best webcast of this particular series of the entire year and a most talked about article at the AAST meeting. Go for it. Youngest faculty and yet the best study. Fantastic. Congratulations, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Congratulations, and I want to thank you both for uh, for contributing to this. I think this may be one of our, uh, maybe in fact one of our best uh, trauma guests, thanks to the iconoclastic uh, discussion that we've had. It's been fantastic. Thank you very, both very much. You're welcome. All right. Yeah, thanks, thanks guys. That's great. And, and again, congratulations on a prospective randomized trauma trial, uh, especially, you know, one not not funded very well. So that's fantastic. Thanks the gauntlet has been thrown down, so hopefully somebody out there listening will take it up and uh, do the study that Dr. Maddox has encouraged us to do. I think he threw down a couple of gauntlets. I think there's a couple of gauntlets people can pick up out there. There's gauntlets all over the floor. That's right. Thank you, and stay well. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.